The following is a conversation with Phil Rizzo. Phil Rizzo is a successful New Jersey businessman, pastor, and politician. Phil is a proud Trump loyalist, a New Jersey gubernatorial candidate, man of God, and a passionate, passionate advocate for conservative values. In this conversation, we speak about communism, New Jersey politics, the protracted COVID shutdown here in New Jersey, schools usurping parental rights, medical freedom, and big pharma's push for transgenderism. Now, there were parts of this conversation that might seem adversarial to some listeners, but I think that Phil will agree that this was just friendly banter of differing opinions done in a respectful but intense way. I enjoyed this conversation. We diverged on a few points, which you'll hear in the following episode. But all in all, I believe Phil to be a great man, a great father, and a worthy political candidate in the state of New Jersey. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Phil Rizzo. Mr. Phil Rizzo, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Um, I've, I've heard a lot about you. I've followed you online. You are somebody that has earned my consideration as a political figure in New Jersey. I really appreciate you taking the time coming on. What made you decide that, you know, your voice needed to be part of this conversation? That's a great question. And I've been asking myself that for the last two years. And uh, really, I, as I ran for governor, sort of the backstory, the, the story that a lot of people hadn't heard is, you know, I'm a real estate guy. I'm a third generation real estate guy. And my grandfather and my father, now me, and, and I have also, besides our family real estate business, I have my own small construction company. I have four teenage children. Uh, my wife and I, both New Jersey natives, and I was pastoring two churches in Hudson County. And so I was not bored, okay? There was there was not a, hey, what what's next in life? Life was pretty much on its path. I've been in the ministry for almost a decade, formally um, as a pastor, um, and my real estate business has been going on for three generations. And so with those personal background details, I actually have a very good cross-section of New Jersey, top to bottom geographically, uh, east to west geographically, and socially as well, you know, from my real estate contacts and my business associates were uh, dealing with people that many times have super high net worth. Um, and then through the ministry, pastoring in deep blue Hudson County, you're dealing with people that maybe literally living paycheck to paycheck and actually struggling to do so. And so I felt like my life had a very good cross section of New Jersey, um, geographically, economically, um, religiously, I mean, you name it. We had a pretty good understanding of who New Jersey families were and everybody was struggling. Everybody was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the direction of the state. And they're all viewing it from their own personal objectives in life. Everything became harder. Everything became more expensive. Everything seemed to become a grind and more difficult. And we saw people fleeing for greener pastures. And listen, I understand every state has their own problems, but it was sort of this growing idea in New Jersey that why do we have to live under this level of stress when we can go live a little bit more stress-free elsewhere. That's what really started the ball rolling in my mind of saying, okay, who's representing us and how do we get involved and how do we fix it? Gotcha. What is something that you see that everybody in New Jersey shares? And, you, you know, respectfully, everybody struggles. I get that. Not as, pa not as a pastor, not as a candidate, you know, as the dad, as the husband before all of that. What do all New Jerseyans have in common? Like, what are some common threads that you think that really unite us regardless of, you know, socioeconomic status or, you know, privilege or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. One is cost of living. Um, no matter how much money you make, it is expensive to live in New Jersey. So cost of living is there. You talk with people who live in Tennessee or whatever, and you say, oh, your real estate taxes. Yeah, I pay $2,400 a year in taxes. I mean, people, they, it blows their minds. It's like, why bother? Why, why have any real estate taxes right? right. Uh, if you're going to charge only 2400 So the cost of living was absolutely common all the way through the, the socioeconomic levels. Um, no matter who you are, New Jersey is expensive. And the second thing that sort of tied everybody together was the red tape 
the bureaucracy, the trudging through mud to get anything done from getting a parking permit uh, to park your car on the street in Hoboken, uh, to being able to uh, sign a lease and get through, you know, uh, attorney review on a real estate deal, to going to the DMV and getting a driver's license. I mean, you name it, the red tape is never ending. And the, the, uh, the effort that's put in to accomplish the most simple things started to become torture. That was pretty consistent, uh, no matter who you were in New Jersey. You know, there's uh, Parkinson's law um, is it's an interesting law. It's almost I'm probably going to dumb it down, but basically a bureaucracy will grow at the rate at which it needs to grow in order to simply sustain itself. And that after a certain point, you know, it's, it's really only existing for the sake of its own existence and, and its own sustenance. And, you know, government begins to get big and, and you know, it's, it's a perfect kind of metaphor for it and it begins to blow and it begins to grow. Um, what now, listen, I've been, I've been to a lot of States, not all of them. And, um, you know, I have to admit that New Jersey does have a certain, a certain draw to it. It is even in some of the, you know, more urban areas where you would expect in other States for it to really look like shit. Um, New Jersey, it kind of ha- does have a polish to it, no matter where it, we are in the state. That there is a certain reliability when it comes to public service. There is a certain reliability when it comes to education. Um, though I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Uh, you, you know, I feel like there are things, and I hate the high taxes, but but I see the difference that high taxes make. I think to some degree. I mean, isn't there isn't there is a trade off, right? Like you can lower the taxes, but where where would we be taking that money from that doesn't screw the people that we depend on the most? Yeah, well, that's the thing with taxes, and that's what I'm saying with bureaucracy. We're not getting what we pay for, right? Nobody complains about high taxes if your services are good. When you're paying high taxes and it takes you nine hours at the DMV to update your driver's license, something's broken, right? And when you pay high taxes and then you got to sit in a toll booth line on the turnpike, you, you know, you start to put these two and two together and, and two and two is not equaling four. And so I, I think the high taxes is, is not the primary issue, even though when I said living in New Jersey is expensive, that's true. But when it comes to taxes, you know, if you get what you pay for, people sort of settle into it we're not getting what we pay for. We're getting the bureaucracy and the red tape and trudging through mud while also paying high taxes. And it doesn't really fit. Do you think that it's any coincidence that just the last few days I saw gas for under $3 and 10 cents a gallon. And, um, you know, a lot of people were saying that was going to happen. And, uh, you know, here we are coming into October and, um, you know, wow, it's really nice amazing now you want to know what i see that was interesting and i'm guilty of it too i hadn't gotten ten dollars in regular in months many months right because it wasn't worth it you'd give them 10 bucks you get i don't know you get like 48 miles out of your car for that 10 bucks so you know it it turned into 20 bucks and now it's starting to drain on the bank account again and you know those are like little ripples that i think grow out and, and really begin to affect everybody um, I got $10 in regular for the first time. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's probably a little bit of both because if people are only getting $10 in gas, it means that, you know, they obviously need the rest of their money. But at the same time, at least now, 10 bucks is is worth it. Um, do you know how much in how much of the gas price that we pay as New Jerseyans, how much of that how much of that is taxes? How much of that, do you know how they break that up and and what goes where? I don't know the specific breakdown, but I do know that we added the gas tax, which is something that traditionally the Republicans really pushed against. Um, And the idea was, hey, we can either pay a little bit more at the pump or we could pay to have our axles, you know, redone. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm saying. New Jersey roads are not good. New Jersey is one of the very few states where you have, when I ran for governor, I learned this, 12 or more different levels of asphalt. 
I mean, states don't have that. I mean, states up in New England where they get a lot more snow, a lot more ice, a lot more cold temperatures than we do here in New Jersey, their roads aren't a disaster because they're paving their road. We have sort of this built-in obsolescence with the, with the asphalt we're using so we keep the cash cow going of having to repave our roads so often. And so, uh, again, you know, I think being excited, uh, listen, I'm excited for you, but being excited for, you know, putting $10 of gas uh, in, our, in our tank, you know, that's where we're getting excited with crumbs. And that's not, that's, an, that's unacceptable. Um, you know, as a lifelong New Jerseyan, as somebody who was born and raised here, I don't want to move to Florida or Tennessee and Texas. I didn't necessarily want to run for office. These are becoming necessities because I'm not going to just accept crumbs uh, and be excited about it. Totally. So now there's been a lot of back and forth about being double taxed with the congestion pricing in New York City. Um, I live in Warren County, so personally, I don't have a need to go to New York City. Um, I, I try to avoid having a need to go to New York City. I've been there plenty of times. I, I really do love the place. But frankly, like most people, a, a trip in and out will cost you just put $100 on top of it, right? And And now with it going to be costing more for certain people, and I like that Governor dislikes the idea of uh, New Jerseyans getting hit in that regard. And I see a lot of uh, Josh Gothheimer stuff coming out, though nobody's really offering specifics. Everybody, at least how I'm hearing it, is like, we're against it. It's a tax. It's a double tax on New Jerseyans. Why does that matter so much? I mean, New York is really trying to promote the use of public transportation. I, I think that I'm, I'm probably the last person to speak about this intelligently, but I would imagine that you're not, you're not going to get a lot of people on. I'm right now. I'm probably tied for last. <laughs> okay. Because I'm thinking like, you're probably not going to get a lot of people to get on a subway if people just keep getting pushed onto tracks and, and cut in the face and, you know, all of these terrible things happening to them. And I get that they're in this little conundrum. And if you fix, if you fix the subways and, and the general concerns of safety, that'll probably be an easier push. But how do you feel about about that congestion pricing? How do you feel about how it will affect New Jerseyans and, you know, what what does it what does it mean to you? It doesn't mean a lot to me, but but I'm at a point in my life where it, where it it, it won't necessarily. What does it mean right. for you? I, I think I think generally speaking, there's a philosophy of governance, right? As a conservative Republican, we're for small government, we're for low taxes, we're for law and order, we're for secure the border, we're for safe streets, we're for high standards of education. I mean, when you start looking at traditional Republican values, we want to protect the First and Second Amendment with our lives. Uh, we are pro-life um, and all the other lists that I just gave you. These are more of a philosophy of governance. And I feel that there's a direction by the current Republican Party leadership here in New Jersey where they're starting to negotiate with terrorists. And so now we're starting to get in the weeds of congestion tax and this, and, and we're starting to get in the weeds because we're, we're like I said earlier, we're, we're just looking for any little thing. We're, we're begging for crumbs from the Uniparty at the top. That's what I realized. You listen, as a, as a right lane conservative and evangelical pastor, uh, I, my positions are secure, but I pastored for almost a decade in deep blue Hudson County. I love Democrats. They, they filled the pews uh, of our church. And so what I realized, though, whether you were Republican or Democrat, nobody was representing us any longer. And so we needed to get back to the basics. We needed to get back to civil service where people come off the sidelines. They leave their career. They leave their life, whatever it is they're doing. They serve their country in whatever capacity for a designated amount of time. And then they go back to doing whatever they were doing. And so that's sort of the philosophy of, of governance that our country was founded on. And yeah, if we keep going down this path, we're going to keep getting deeper into the weeds of, of nuance of taxes. But really, you know, I'd like to pull all that back and get to the simple philosophy of governance. Some of the things I already explained. What is, um, there's been a lot of talk about the curriculum this year in New Jersey. Um, there's been a lot of talk. My wife is an educator. She's an elementary school educator. Um, I've got three elementary age children, well, two and a half elementary age children. 
Um, It doesn't seem to make sense to me, Um, at least in a place where I like to know that I've got control over the things, over the the raising and the development of my children and, and that I'll leave it up to the public education system to, to teach them the basics, but not to raise them. Um, I am, I do understand the demographic of New Jersey. Um, it is a very unique demographic and, and I love it. I, and frankly, I think that a cross section of New Jersey is, is quite frankly, probably close to a cross section of the country. And, and it's immigration is what makes our country wonderful. It's what it is. Um, I believe that, our country is unique in the sense that we aren't filled with the rich people that come here to park their money. Uh, we are filled with the people that are hopeful that have a pocket with $7 in it that don't know a language that are going somewhere to work their ass off and provide a better life for their kids and for their family and hopefully for generations to come. So we are actually a, I, I think, I mean, we're founded by scoundrels and criminals and and hard workers and people that are familiar with toil and anguish, but getting the job done. And and that's really the American dream. And that's really the American story. Um, When when did it become okay for for schools to begin to have conversations with children that, that parents should be having? I mean, are they doing us a favor? Do they think that they're doing us a favor? Um, is there any shame in that? Where do you, what do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you nailed it in, in your commentary that you want the schools to teach your children the basic academic standards and you want to leave everything else up to the parents and that's where it belongs. And, and that is not the agenda of the radical left. The radical left says you're not woke enough to teach your children about the new America. Well, what new America? It's the new America that they are creating. They're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're saying that that America is this, and the painting that they're presenting to us is pure communism. And then what they're doing is they're going to the next generation, they're jumping over grandparents, they're jumping over parents, and they're going to our children, and they are making sure that they produce what will fulfill that painting down the road. And so what they do is they, how do you bring about communism? You have to go to the next generation and you have to pollute and you have to pervert their minds and you have to divide them and make them weak so that you can control them. And that is exactly what this curriculum is designed to do. And we had a, we had a, a, a telethon um, last week where we did 12 hours of presenting school board candidates statewide. It was a live event that we ran digitally and we had legislators from up and down the state come in and talk with us. And then we had school board candidates and all sorts of people came on. We had 12 hours worth of content. One of the most interesting interviews that we did was with uh, State Senator Joe Panaccio. And what he told us, he told us that he brought in an amendment to the bill concerning these curriculum standards. And he brought in an amendment that said, you cannot teach a six-year-old six specific sex acts. Sounds like a reasonable, rational thought. Quite honestly, if it was me, I would have made it 16, not six, but we get the point. At six, this is a no-brainer. It got voted down. And it got voted down on party lines. And then I brought this up with with Senator John Bramnick as I debated him on the direction of the party, and he sticks his head in the sand like an ostrich and says, there's no agenda by the government. That's, That's willful ignorance. Of course there's an agenda. What's the purpose of doing anything if there's not a plan, if there's not an agenda, if there's no agenda to pervert the next generation's minds and hearts, then why are we doing it? It is for a very specific purpose, and it takes a very cursory glance at history to realize that when you want to fundamentally change a country and a culture, you go to the children and you capture their minds and hearts to help them fulfill whatever painting you have for tomorrow. So I'll, I'll agree with that to some degree. I'll agree, I'll agree that you have to capture the minds and the hearts of children. Do you think that there's maybe another reason and that it's not that they 
want to take i mean i mean I, everybody's got an agenda i mean even as conservatives we have an agenda and and i think that like our agenda or any agenda is basically like a midterm wish list right or or you know a, a near term midterm long term a mid and long term wish list and and the agenda is you know let's try to get that mid and long term agenda taken care of and i think as a conservative we have it i i think that everybody really has an agenda but do you think that framing it that way might end up putting off some people? I mean, I get the communist thing too. Aren't aren't a lot of social services, they can be considered to be communistic, can't they? They can. And so instead of, you know, burning the whole barn down, let's go where we have 99% unity. And that is six-year-olds should not be taught specific sex acts. And that's why I use that as the example. And it was voted down on party lines. So what sort of demented person wants a six-year-old learning specific sex acts? To call them anything other than demented is, is to not be honest with what you're dealing with as your enemy. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, people are talking about in their houses. People are talking about this at dinner. They're talking about this uh, uh, across party lines from Republican to Democrat, everybody in between. These are the conversations that they're having. Very few people are willing to put their face on camera and say it into a microphone or into a camera. I will. That's just sort of how I'm wired. I'm willing to speak it. And I am, like I said earlier in the intro, I've got a pretty good cross section of New Jersey families. And so John Bramnick tried to paint me as this this angry fighter. I said, John, you're tone deaf. I am the voice of the people because I'm a pastor and it's been my job to listen to people. I am simply echoing the anger and the frustration from New Jersey families through party lines. You're the one who's not listening. And so could this be a turnoff? Yeah, sure. To the radical left or to rhinos who just are trying to hold on to their last shred of power. They don't want somebody like Rizzo coming in and upsetting the apple cart. They got a pretty good thing going right now. And so, you know, it starts to say, hey, well, you know, your sentiment is right, but we don't like the way you say it. This is the way people are saying it to me up and down the state for the last four years. And so, again, I am glad to be the voice because I have enough courage to say it in a microphone. Who do you think is going to be the Democratic nominee for governor next time around? Uh Well, there's an interesting uh, battle uh, between what we'll call a state Democrat, uh, somebody like Steve Sweeney from South Jersey. He's a state Democrat. I know that name. Uh, and And then you've got globalists. You got globalists like Bill Murphy. You got globalists like Barack Obama and Michael Bloomberg. And so that Democratic candidate is Mikey Sherrill from uh, Congressional District 11. Uh, She's got very close ties with globalists. She is going to be the the nod from the globalist Democrats. And I'm pretty sure Steve Sweeney will be the nod from the, you know, the state Democrats. Um, And they'll go to battle and we'll see who wins. That's how it's, I I mean, I've never looked at it that way. Um, So state and globalist. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I totally well, listen, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, there might be right. a couple of people that get thrown in the mix there. But really, what I've understood is is that sort of philosophy of of state versus, you know, this new global agenda that is really being pushed on us regularly. Can I apply that same lens to the Republican ticket as well? Perhaps maybe you would be considered the state candidate and, and the the larger, uh, I guess it's Cittarelli, would be the globalist candidate? Well, I'll see, I don't think Jack's a globalist, right? But I think, I think um, uh, Jack is, you know, your traditional moderate. I think what divide we have in the Republican Party, unlike the Democratic Party, is we've got our conservatives and then we've got our compromisers. I think that is the distinguishing language within the Republican Party, the conservatives versus the compromisers. And, and, you know, we see that conservatives are the ones that win. These moderates, everybody says, oh, New Jersey's purple slash blue. You got to be a moderate. 
Well, moderates don't win. You know, Mitt Romney lost his bid for presidency. John McCain lost his bid for presidency. But who won? Uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Bush won, who, by the way, after he broke a conservative promise, he got ousted after, you know, one term. Bush, too. And I have my disagreements with him, but at least he ran um, as a conservative. And Trump. Moderates lose, conservatives win, but somehow in New Jersey, the NJGOP keeps feeding the, the, the party that we have to go moderate. Well, I had a sit down with Jack Cittarelli after the primary when he beat me uh, uh, in June for the gubernatorial nomination. And he said, I'm going for the independence. It's the largest voting block. I said, Jack, it's a phantom voting block. You're going after independents as if there's some sort of, it's like it's their moderates, like Democrats are left, Republicans are right, independents are moderates. I said, moderates are not what you think they are. Moderates are disenfranchised Republicans. They've left the party because they're sick and tired of weak rhinos. And so they're disassociating with the NJGOP and their independents, or they're apathetic to politics. Why would you shoot for people being a pro-choice Republican, voting against the Second Amendment time and time again, uh, uh, not backing President Trump? Why would you go to those people who either don't like you or don't care about you? And so I think the establishment Republicans in New Jersey have a very massive miscalculation of the demographic of New Jersey registered voters. And I believe independents are the largest group because they're disenfranchised Republicans. They are actually right of the NJGOP. And so that's why a guy like me, who has no political background, I ran for governor for four and a half months and pulled almost 27% of the vote. How does, that's, that's political craziness. How does something like that happen? It's because they are misconstruing the, the, voter registration, and we are not. And so that's sort of my understanding of the divide within the Republican Party. I mean, Republicans have a pretty tight rope to walk as it is, right? And I think it's because it's because we don't control our own narrative. The people can understand that, for example, maybe I'm not for Roe versus Wade, but but for the simple reason that it's not up to the government to decide actually and that it should be left up to the states and let the states decide um that doesn't mean that i'm against a woman's reproductive rights because that's absolutely not the case it's just the case that i believe in the government and the representative republic and i think it's right the way that it was and and to keep the government out of people's medical decisions um that rogue versus wade actually barged in on so leave it up to the states um i'll probably like to live in a state that gives people the option but but that's not a high ticket item for me particularly as a 43 year old married man with three children right but but it is because two of my children are are, are I've got two beautiful daughters so I want to make sure that they at least have options perhaps right and the way that I look at it is that I am I am religious and I am spiritual I was born and raised a Roman Catholic but but my faith has evolved over the years and I think in the right direction um even if not I'm pretty sure that I'll you know I'll, I'll get the you know, he'll let me in because I think I'm doing a pretty good job. But I can tell you that like socially, and I think I speak for a lot of my, at least for my peer group, socially, I am kind of moderate. Okay, I don't give a shit what you do in your house. I don't care if you smoke weed. I don't care if you smoke crack. I don't, I don't care who you marry, who you love, how you express your love, how you express your faith, as long as it doesn't impede on my own expression and enjoyment. And and I and I believe that for that right for everybody, but fiscally, um, I'm certainly a little bit more conservative, and I think that that speaks to a lot of um, Gen X, at least from the Northeast New Jersey, you know, where we are socially moderate, but we are we're tolerant in that regard, and not that we want our rights or our country to be eroded, but rather we want it to be protected for everybody. We just don't really give a shit if a guy marries a guy or a girl marries a girl, because we all know gay people before we knew that they were gay. We all know people and, and welcome people into our hearts and our homes before we knew that we weren't supposed to like them, right? Or at least before the media told us that, it, you know, there's people out there that don't. But do you think 
and I did vote for Trump and I was happy to. I mean, how far right do you think you can go in New Jersey? You know, it, it is it is a blue state, right? But it's always on the line. I'll agree with that. It, it is pretty it is pretty close. But yeah, I mean, are we how far right can we go here? I, I well, hey, Chris Christie won twice, and for all of his flaws, he ran two very pro life campaigns, and he won twice. So we're not a blue state, okay? We're a red state, and we got some very big blue cities. Um, and that's basically America, right? How many blue states really are there? Like almost none. It, everybody's red. And then it just depends on how big your blue cities are to, to move the needle on a statewide level. But here's my position on how far right can we go? Well, again, I pulled 27% of the vote being an absolute nobody because the things that I stand on are traditional Republican values. And even though people don't agree with my personal position, they know I'm willing to listen to them. And with my pastoral background, I want them to succeed in their life. They may not go about it the way I do. So I had people, I had Democrats, pro-choice Democrats, changing their voter registration to Republican to vote for me, even though they disagree with me on life. I had people that were voting for me, even though they don't stand on the Second Amendment the way I do. They, they, they may hate guns, but they knew that I was the freedom candidate, that I am the small government guy that's looking to get government out of your life. You want to be a progressive liberal? Go be a progressive liberal. You want to be a right-lane conservative? Go be a right-lane conservative. You have to get the government out of people's lives. And where I would find a maybe a nuance, maybe it's a boulder, I don't know, where this idea of being socially liberal but fiscally conservative, I think you need to study that out a little bit because what does social liberalism cost? Fatherless homes cost us a lot of money. Drug addicts cost us a lot of money. Abortion costs us a lot of money. So this idea that we can be socially moderate or liberal, but fiscally conservative, those two lines don't intersect each other because, because liberal social positions ultimately with a big government end up costing us money. And that's what we're dealing with right now as a small government guy, I would agree with you. You wanna be liberal, go be liberal. But I don't think that the state should be paying for it, right? Our tax, we're getting taxed on everything. Everything is going up. Insurance, uh, uh, taxes, everything is going up. Why? Because we have to pay for the, the, the really the, the, the pain that comes along with sort of that loose lifestyle, if you will. So you're telling me that my taxes are going up because gay people want to get married? No, but... You can't deny that HIV back in the 80s raised uh, health insurance premiums for everybody. I mean, that's. Yeah, but it's 2023. I agree with that. But yeah, well, it's just something new now. So now it's so now it's transgenderism and now it's abortion to literally birth. And it doesn't matter if you're a resident of New Jersey. You can come here from anywhere in the country and New Jersey is going to pay for it. So, yeah, in 2022, 2023. We can insert a new uh, uh, socially liberal thing, whatever it is. And yeah, it's going to be different from the 80s and it'll be different from the 50s. But there's always going to be some level of social liberal behavior that has a cost associated to it. So yeah, no, I agree with you that no, our taxes aren't going up because men have the legal right to marry men. That That's an old one that doesn't exist today but there's a new one today and so there's two new ones today or three new ones so it's always going to be something well and, and with all due respect does it and i understand your faith and i respect your faith um uh, does it really bother you personally whether or not two people whoever they are you know have a relationship or the extent of it legal like you, you know all of the good things the health insurance the life insurance and all that stuff i mean is that really bought does that really bother you my own sin bothers me right I, i'm a pastor i'm not perfect you know that's the whole purpose of jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross because 
8 billion people on earth and nobody's good enough to earn their way to heaven. And so I can't get to heaven on my own, no matter how many sermons I preach. And so my sin bothers me. Um, and so as a pastor, you know, my job is to preach the holy word of God and what it does, no matter what somebody is dealing with in their personal life, sitting in the pews, the word of God is a mirror and you look at yourself you see what's wrong, you fix it, you get it in line with the word of God and you go about your day. And every day we sin and every day we fall, but that's that's the whole purpose of salvation through Jesus. And so, no, I mean, I, I don't, I've told our church regularly, don't you ever single out somebody's sin. You know, I'll preach a message and if I happen to be on homosexuality, I will preach on it from the word of God. But adultery is also in the Bible. So is drunkenness and lying. And so, no, I don't elevate one sin above another. I am most concerned with my own sin, my sinning against my Savior, but all sin is the same according to the Word of God. There are not levels of it like humans try to put on it. And I do agree that we are uh, we are a government based on Judeo-Christian values, and I think that that's important, um, and, and I think that it should be ubiquitous to to a, you know an appropriate degree through our governance i get the push towards a communal type government and communal type relationship and and the, the loss of property rights and, and things like that um, i get that when it comes to communism what i don't get when it comes to communism are certain social programs and i'm not i think that government is is well way too big for its britches um it doesn't need to be this big to function it's dysfunctional when it's this big um but i also understand that without an epa there would be a lot of people that w would be dead but i also know the fda and along with many of the other organizations are corrupt because of my profession and my career and my areas of study and research i know that your diet shouldn't be foundational upon carbohydrates okay like i know that and and if you follow the food pyramid you're guaranteed to get diabetes and this is a government organization and and i see you know and in my own kind of cryptic way i'm like okay well you know pharmaceuticals is also a business and i get that i wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for the polio vaccine and all of those things you know that that people try to lump me in other categories because i'm a little bit more selective about my own personal medical care than most than some other people right i'm i'm just not blind and that's it you know but when i see that i'm getting lumped in the same category as as you know what a caricature of an anti-vaxxer would be simply because i'm not that stupid i don't need it for a cold i don't need it for something that just you know isn't necessarily going to kill me i'm not a particular risk for my kids aren't statistically and practically at risk they don't need an extra medicine they have enough these are things that the media has done such a great job at using to leverage us away from each other when I think at the end of the day, most people really don't give a shit if their neighbors are gay or if marijuana is illegal or not. Like, I get why it should be. I get why it shouldn't be. Um, you know, addiction has touched my life in a very personal way, much like it's touched everybody's, right? Like cancer, it's so regrettable, but it's true that those are two things that, that nobody should experience that everybody's experienced. Addiction, the COVID shutdown over something that really did seem political and it seemed like a, a democratic political pissing contest and who can handle this the more um, progressive way. Uh, my business, my livelihood, my family took it, will never be the same because of it. And that is what it is. Sometimes, you know, people just win the shit lottery. What could we really have done during that shutdown that would have appeased all reasonable parties and not really helped anybody necessarily toe their political line? Well, I think the that's a great question. Um, but I think the premise of the question is based on consensus. I don't necessarily think we should govern on consensus. You know, science is not up for... Uh, well, most scientists say, well, science is not based on a plurality. It doesn't matter what most people say. So how should we have handled COVID based on what I experienced? We should have treated COVID like the flu, just like the flu. Obviously, it is undeniable, undeniable, inarguable, not arguable that masks do nothing. Cloth masks do nothing to stop 
a virus. And yet they pushed a mask on us for two years. Um, and so now you've got that massive submission of the populace, which I'll be honest with you, blew my mind. I mean, what happened to counterculture? I mean, I remember being 16, 17, 18, me and my football buddies, we were just waiting for the next rule to come out to not do it, right? Where was counterculture? Where were the teenagers that were like, oh, an adult's telling us to do this? No, I would, my mind was blown away by the amount of universal submission to something that was actually anti-science. It was, it was opposite of what was right. And so the question was, how do you, how do you deal with, with COVID? I think we should have dealt with COVID the same way you deal with the flu every year. But the ultimate question was, how do you deal with COVID? Please the parties. You can't govern like that. You have to look at the information and you have to have enough nerve and a rigid enough backbone to make a decision, whether it's popular or not. It's the right decision. And I think Governor DeSantis hit it out of the park. I mean, he was going to be the guy who killed all the elderly in Florida. Well, you know, 24 months later, the guy looks like a genius. You know, he's got the rough, he's got the same population as New York. Uh, the, the age of his population is older than New York, and yet the death count was way different. Why? Because I think he dealt with it saying, hey, the government's going to stay out of your life. Go figure it out with your doctor. I think it was very concerning to watch the doctors play ball with this narrative as well. That was very concerning. That may be for a, a different topic for another day, but I mean, I can't believe what people that say they study medicine and science to this day. I mean, we're, we're coming up on 2023 and in most medical facilities, they want you to put a mask on. I mean, full blown off the cliff into stupidity. It's just wild. You know, it's interesting because there are still a couple of places that require a mask. It does really look like theater and it does look silly at this point. But, you know, I think that those people are virtue signaling. The, the establishments that have the plastic up and the people behind it that don't have their masks on and the people in the office that do and then the person behind it basically sneezes in their little plastic bubble and now it doesn't make much sense to me but I, I get the effort right and maybe that's what that's all that they want is they want that participation trophy they just want a, an acknowledgement that they were here and they played by the rules for longer than anybody and that's why they should get that accolade well you know, I threw out the big C word earlier, you know, communism, you know, in countries that trend towards communism, you've got leadership imposing this tyranny and these rules and these regulations. And all these people down here, they don't agree with it, but they're just playing along. Leadership had a name for them. They're called useful idiots. And so they just became pawns to make people like me become the mark to say, I'm the rebel. And the people that were wearing the mask, they didn't think the mask was doing anything for them, but they played along because they thought they were being a good neighbor. The elites call them useful idiots. That's just history. So do you think, do you think that gives them a playbook for next time? Or do you feel as though they went to the extent of their boldness on that one and they probably won't try something like that again it does look like they've got some secrets that have been revealed and i don't think that anybody can reasonably and i don't want to get into it much this conversation but there there certainly was some shady shit going on with the election i don't know what it was but you know i don't know sometimes things just don't feel right right and and that didn't feel right now i'm not saying anything i'm just saying that like it didn't feel right you know, do you think that they're going to use this as a playbook again? I mean, the timing of it was convenient, much like the gas prices right now. Are we at risk for that level of tyranny, I guess, is the question. Oh, yeah, the, the playbook is written. Listen, when you, when you create a monster, that monster needs to eat. And we created a monster called Big Pharma. I mean, this is no longer Big Pharma. It's gigantic pharma. And we fed that beast and that thing is not going to die easily. So we come out of COVID and what do we have? Transgender push on our six and seven and eight and nine-year-olds? Big Pharma is behind the transgender push. What better way to feed that beast 
than to take a healthy person and make them a patient for the next 70 years. Any six-year-old boy who transitions to a girl has to take estrogen shots for the next 70 years. Same as a girl who's 11, who had, wants to transition to a boy, she's got to take testosterone shots for the next 60 years. This beast is out of control, and it's going to keep eating until we kill it. Do you understand how crazy that sounds, though, respectfully? I mean, do you understand that? I don't know. And I'm just thinking of it from a logical sense. And I feel as though they've probably got a much larger market available to them on things that they're going to need medicine for than sexual sexual reassignment surgeries. I mean, I, I do agree with you that, that pharma is, there's something going on there. I, I think that pharma, irony intended, is there's a huge cancer growing within the pharma industry and that it is a business. Um, I've got my reasons. They're probably extremely controversial. Um, of why that is, but I think that just in the, in the current state of world affairs, there's less opportunity for guinea pigs, and we, we need to make medical advances. There's no question that medicine's going to look much different in 50 years from now than it did 50 years ago. Um, I mean, we're on the cutting edge of, you know, a, a whole bunch of unimaginable shit, but... I do think that the pharmaceutical company will have their tobacco moment when enough of the old guard die and that the lobby passes away and the younger, newer, fresher representatives who don't owe the pharmaceutical industry anything come up and say, well, hold on a second. You were trying to withhold the COVID vaccine data for 70 years. Like what, what's, what's that about? We, there's only one kind of person that would really want to do that. And that would be a dishonest person. You're not dishonest, are you? Um, and I think it goes much deeper than that. That sounds that sounds crazy, but so does the fact that Randolph has a girl who's allowed to walk around and meow in class and identify as a feline. I, I, I commend- and I'll tell you why it's not crazy. And, and I and I can appreciate your position that you think it sounds crazy. But you know, Bill Maher is not somebody that I would say I agree with. Okay. Bill Maher is is hard left okay and he is intellectually honest enough to say okay transgender people that literally are changing their biological gender have gone from a fraction of a fraction of a decimal point to all of a sudden we have 15 percent of the culture believing that their pronouns need to change from their biological gender. If you don't think there's big math behind that, I mean, that is a monster number. 15% of the culture under 25, keep ringing that cash register as this narrative never goes away. If we don't defeat this narrative of of gender reassignment and pronouns and the unscientific thought that you could possibly be born in the wrong body. If we don't kill that beast, then every first grader becomes a target and a cash register for big pharma. I almost think it's crazy not to see it. You know, I think where we diverge is the fact that big pharma is behind it because because of the market. I, I think that that's probably where where I'm disconnecting. I I think also that again, I don't give a shit what people do. I just don't want to pay for it, right? If you want to you want to get spikes put in your face and walk around like a demon, like that's fine. And then. <sighs> You know, well, that, that's that's what I was talking about before the socially liberal and conservative uh, 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 financials. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't necessarily care either. Now, the fact that I'm a pastor and the word of God is my guide. Yes, I, I care for people and their eternity. Right. That's inborn in me as now a Christian. But people have what we call soul liberty, individual soul liberty. People can do whatever they want and they don't have to be punished for it. They're going to deal with God over those things. So I agree with you a billion percent on that. I don't want to have to pay for it, but we are, we are paying for it. So our government now pays when you join the military, they pay for your transition surgery. I, I don't, um, I don't like that idea. I mean, I like, I just like, I just, I can't, 
I kind of I feel like you should almost be disqualified in most cases if if that's the case. But it's I say in all cases, it, in it, all cases, the, the 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 our military is not a social club. It is a it is designed to be the most extreme killing machine on earth. That is what it's supposed to be. It is not a social club. Listen, I'm an amputee since I'm four years old. I can't get in the military because I can't do the pull-up requirements. Okay, get over it. Go do something else. Like this whole idea that everybody needs to be included is just, it's its really going to be the downfall of our country if we're not careful and we don't start getting very serious and see, I learned in politics, if we don't start seeing that everything that happens today has nothing to do with today, everything is about tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. It is the ultimate chess game. As Republicans, we're so far behind the eight ball, it's terrifying. We're trying to figure out how to pick up six congressional seats in 35 days. The Democrats are already working on 2030. They're so far ahead of us. Their chess moves are so far down the road. We're trying to figure out how we're going to win six seats uh, in November. We better start really thinking and calling evil for what it is, not being afraid and saying, listen, I don't know every little nuance of why I don't agree with this, but you, I think you nailed it, right? I'm not saying anything about the election, but it didn't feel right. When we get that, eh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right, we better get very serious about opposing it because by the time we figure out why it didn't feel right, the steamroller's over us. So do you think then we're already screwed because we've been quiet, and I agree that we've been quiet. I think that the Republican leadership in New Jersey was impotent at best during the COVID shutdown. But do you feel, because we've been quiet for so long, that now the dissenting voices are considered extremist, even if they're reasonable? And, and what they do is they try to make examples out of groups. Like, they really tried to do that with the Bundys down in the Southwest. And um, I'm glad that that ended peacefully. But I'm also glad that it ended the way that it did, because that was that right there tells you a lot about the way that the that our government is written and, and how it's, like, really how it works. You know, you've got these, these guys now down with the insurrection on the 6th and I, I guess it's uh this one group is now being interviewed uh or, or rather they're on trial right now but they're trying to make examples so this way they can use it as a template and, and crucify anybody who's a dissenting voice right and there again i see echoes of communism and property loss and things like that um and it is insidious and it's brilliant it's calculated and it's smart and problem is is that we rested on our loyal our laurels and our good faith and trust in humanity for too long. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be aggressive and, and wrest control back. But what it means is, you're right, is that we've got to find the common tone among the people that are the dissenting, the quiet dissenters. But I, I think that you and I are going to disagree a little bit. I think that the common ground is a little bit more moderate, in it, but I don't know the solution. I don't know how it comes together in a way that still validates and respects the Constitution. I'm not that smart, but I, but I feel like, you know, I, I am a conservative. My kids know the difference between imagination and reality. My four-year-old daughter pretends to be a unicorn sometimes, and when she does that, my children understand that, like, but we treat her with love. We just know that she's not a unicorn, and and that's how they're raised. Uh, but I, I feel as though, at the end of the day, we all want the same shit, right? We want, ultimately, we want the government out of our lives. We want control of, or at least we want to feel like we have control of our destiny, but we certainly want to make sure that we feel as though we are the steward stewards of our children's future. I've, I've said this, and, and I think that what you just said is so true, because that's, that's been a campaign talking point of mine. Historically, Democrats and Republicans have the exact same goals. We want safe neighborhoods. We want good education for our children. We want them to get married and we want them to move out of the house. And then we want them to go duplicate that in their lives, right? My pastor up in Connecticut, he used to say, the only thing sadder than watching your kids leave home is watching them stay, right? So, so you know, that's our objective. Safe neighborhoods, high education, watch them get married, watch them move out, start their own career and family for themselves. And it just reproduces generation after generation. Democrats wanted to go this way 
Republicans wanted to go this way, but we all had the same goal. That was true until the radical progressives showed up. And now they have hijacked the Democrat party. And when you have Republicans who are still operating, thinking we've got the same goals, that's how we lose. The left is playing hardball. New Jersey Republicans are playing wiffle ball. And that's why we're losing. That's why we're giving up ground. And I beat up the New Jersey Republicans because I live in New Jersey and that's what affects me the most right now today. But that's true nationally. And you know how I know the left is playing hardball and the Republicans are playing wiffle ball? It's because a dude just recently won the girls national championship in swimming. That's how I know we're losing. And until somebody stands up and speaks up about what's going on, we are going to continue to give up ground. And I know more people believe and think like me, very few are willing to say it. That's why I said in that debate with John Bramick, I've had these private conversations with people. They just for either employment or their neighbors or their neighborhood or their retaliation against their kids, or it's just not in their DNA to be gregarious and say these things publicly. This is the pulse and tenor of the voice and heartbeat of New Jersey families. They've had it up to here and that is our common ground. And that's how we're gonna start taking great gains because the left has gone too far. And now we know we can't always consider the good in people. We have to consider the ill intentions of people. And if we don't pull the line back, it's not coming back. They will just keep pushing further and further and further. You know, so Leah Thomas, they did rescind her um, her awards and her medals. And the, uh, the governing body for that particular organization did change their rules to 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 accommodate for that and, and i think they do a pretty good job of kind of straddling the middle at least in my opinion um but but they have during you know they have to be have made some sort of transition and it's a personal decision but it's a they have to have made that transition before puberty or something of the sort so this way they're not influenced by you know the um the mature hormones and you know they would be indistinguishable so and then and let, let me just interrupt you right there what sort of sicko would allow a prepubescent child to make a life-altering decision like that you go through puberty at 12, 13, 14 years old. Anybody who lets a 12, 13, or 14-year-old make a life-altering decision never to be corrected, you've got to be some sort of sicko to allow that to happen to a child. I believe that that's child abuse, and I think it should be prosecuted. And if we don't lose our country and we don't go off the cliff, time will prove that people that allow that to happen to their children will be prosecuted. So, you know, I went, my daughter is 10 and uh, I went to the dentist, took my two oldest kids, uh, 10 and nine to the dentist yesterday. And it was just for a cleaning. They got to pick their flavor of toothpaste and they get to pick their flavor of fluoride. So as a responsible parent, I had asked a technician, is this the same fluoride that's in their toothpaste that they brush with twice a day? Uh, and she said, it is. And I said, what's more effective? Is it the dose of, of fluoride that you're giving them in this treatment or just, you know, the repetitive and frequent usage of their fluoride toothpaste every day? And she said their fluoride toothpaste every day. Um, okay, fine. So I said, I think we're going to forego then the, the fluoride blast if, if what they're getting is sufficient because we don't want to overdo it. But I want to make sure that they have everything that they need, you know, and we are selective. Like my kids haven't been vaccinated for chickenpox. Um, I'm happy to say that they won't be vaccinated for chickenpox because I want my shingles booster when my kids come home with chickenpox. And that's why all of a sudden we had this huge surge of, um, of shingles. And that's because these parents were getting their kid pox vaccinated. They, they lost their shingles booster. And now you got to deal with this, right? But, you know, we're selective. I love it. I'm, I'm so using that, by the way. That right? is great. It, it's true. And, you know, it again, I'm not, we're not obstinate we're not deniers we're just but we we follow the science um and but we're not silly about it we pay close attention i got chicken pox when i was six years old i came home from school and i said that my best friend wasn't in school my mom asked where and i said they, they were home with chicken pox and my mom calls loretta and says hey loretta is michael okay and yeah, michael's okay all right i'm gonna i'm gonna bring i'm gonna bring matthew over and she's like all right bring him over i went over i had a play date with this kid guess what 
Got my chicken pox, right? So, you know, it wasn't painful. It wasn't the leaderist. It wasn't, you know, a health risk for me. But I asked for my 10-year-old daughter and, and my 9-year-old son that I want to forego that fluoride treatment. Dentist came, checked the hardness of their teeth. They're doing a great job. There's no indication of cavities. Perfect. Guess what? My kids don't use fluoride toothpaste because they don't need to. And I know they don't need to because the dentist told me that they're doing a great job. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm being an irresponsible parent. That means that, like, if you told me that my kid's teeth, you know, the enamel was starting to wear and, and, you know, we're trying to figure out why, you know, I can fix that and I know how. But there's no need for it right now. So why, why trouble ourselves with it? Um, but again, it's not being obstinate or resistant. It's just being selective and, and deliberate in our approach. I couldn't, and I'm going to make that same decision for my kids when they're 14, 15, 16. Um, you know, maybe when they're getting older now, now we've got some sort of conversation going and they can direct their own medical decisions. But if I'm still deciding whether my 13 year old daughter is getting fluoride on her teeth or not, I, I'm I'm going to be in charge of many of those medical decisions going forward. And my my children, the safest place they can be is at home, no matter what, no matter what the circumstance. It's it's terrible when parents think that they have to rely on the state in order to raise their children. It's a whole lot less necessary than they think it is. It's funny, um, you know, I'll be throwing my wife under the bus here not much but when we first had our our our, our first child who's now 20 by the way um you know we're first-time parents we don't know you know 99 percent of the things to do we don't know what to do um and my wife was in the routine of, of calling the doctor and then finally i forget if it was my mom or her mom said listen before you call the doctor call one of us right like why are we going to you know these new younger doctors that are giving you the new things that they were taught when we can go to good old reliable not everything that's new is better and i remember that and i'm 45 years old now and now my kids are 20 19 18 and 14 and i still remember that and that is going to be the same advice that i will give to my children if it should be necessary hey before you call the doctor call me right and let's you know, hit the reset button a little bit on all this new push and all this new idea. I mean, I love it. Listening about that chicken pox story. I mean, I had flashbacks right there. Right. And I think that most parents, at least at one point during their parental career, do something that defies science, defies logic, and it just feels better than what the other alternatives are. And I won't judge a parent for making that decision, even if they got it wrong, because there are moments as a parent where you're scared shitless and you have no idea what to do. And you know what? Sometimes you've got three evils. You've got, you know, one of them is, two of them are bad. And, you know, one choice is as good as the next. And, and you win some, you lose some. It's it's important that communities rally around those parents. Don't demonize them. Don't, you know, make them pariahs or anything like that. But, you know, and that goes with addiction and, and suicide and, and, you know, these problems that kids are facing now online that are making it they're not making it harder to parent i think it's making it more important for parents to focus on raising their kids self-esteem because the kid's self-esteem is their bulletproof vest right and that self-esteem can come from a faith right it can come from religion it can come from a relationship with jesus and with god it can come from a lot of places but it originates under the roof of home and and it's important that we work on that because if you can raise a child, a child's self-esteem, you can raise their their expectations of themselves. Um, and I think that that's you know we'll add that to the education, we'll add that to the the communist and social justice things of you know what we're going to end up talking about during our next conversation. I want to ask you, Phil Rizzo, what does it mean to you to be human? That's great, and we sort of touched on that a little bit. So, uh, as a human, uh, I am created in God's image. Um, back in Genesis uh, chapter one, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he was talking about human beings and he created Adam and Eve. And here we are descendants of the first humans. Uh, and in the Garden of Eden, they ate of the tree uh, of the knowledge uh, of good and evil. They broke that command and their relationship with God was broken. Uh, and with humanity, all humans have that same problem. We have a broken relationship with our creator because of sin. 
And as a human being, our desire, sort of that emptiness that everybody has in their heart somewhere along their lives, there's, there's something missing and they either try and fill it with money or uh, career or marriage or children or sex, drugs and rock and roll, whatever it is, there's this satisfaction that people are always looking for to fill that part in our heart that seems missing and that void in a person's heart is put there deliberately by God that only he can fill and so as human beings I think it's on us to learn how to restore our relationship with God and as a human being I just am so thankful for somebody who showed me that one day when I was a senior in college uh, my parents' pastor uh, had a had a private meeting with me. Uh, it was not a Sunday. I, I hadn't been at church. I was in college. Our paths crossed. And he asked me, he said, Philip, he said, you mind if I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, if you died today, are you 100% certain where you'd spend eternity? Or do you have some doubts? And my answer was this at 21 years old. You know, I think I know where I'd spend eternity, but I hope I'm wrong. I was a, coll I was a college senior. I knew how my life was living and it did not align with how my parents raised me in a Christian home. And so I didn't know where I was going to spend eternity. I thought I knew. And he shared the gospel with me. And in that moment, I didn't become a Christian. It wasn't until 18 months later, I realized that my life had that hole in it. And the only thing that could fill it was Jesus. And so when I was 23 years old, I became a Christian. And now my life is lived for my creator and my savior. And so what does it mean to be human? Human means we are the crown jewel of God's creation. God made us at the very end of creation and he desires to have a relationship with us. And that relationship is available to anybody who will come to God the way that he tells us to in his word. And that's through Jesus Christ. And so that's what I believe a human is. It's to fill that void in our heart that's created there on purpose by God that only he can fill. And um, it's by grace. I'm no better than anybody else. We talked earlier, you know, does, does somebody's sin really bother me? No, not more than my own sin bothers me. Um, and so as a human, that's what it means. I'm made in God's image and I need to reconnect with my creator. Amen. Well, thank you. And God bless you. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, thank you so much for sharing me with your audience. I loved it. I mean, that was very uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually stimulating. I really enjoyed the conversation. Cool. Thanks, man. We're going to do it again. And I've got some questions for you. As soon as I hit the button, I'm probably going to want to hit stay record. But 